This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. All right, welcome to Disability Law Show. Good to have you back this week. John Stoll's here and Tamar Agobian, partner, Sanfiru Tamarkin, LLP, the most positively reviewed disability law firm in the land. We have so much to get through on the show today. Reaching out anytime, I'll give you that information. Tomorrow's team available, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. Tomorrow, what are we opening with, my friend? John, I want to start talking uh, at the top of our show about the rate of success that we have with mediations. And and it's an oldie but a goodie, I guess what I would describe it as, because it's amazing to me... Um, how little people understand how great the process can be and how uh, different it is from having to deal with the insurance company directly. And so I'm going to talk about a situation in very general terms. And it's one where uh, it's an individual that I've worked with and she came to us after fighting with the insurance company for over two years. Okay. Over two years, they denied her disability benefits uh, they use the classic, you know, you've got uh, subjective symptoms, but we're looking for objective medical information. And on that basis, we don't think you're really all that badly off. You know, you've had these health issues for a long, long time. You should be able to continue working. And so they never approved her disability claim. So imagine by the time she came to us, she's sort of at the end of her rope, both from a health perspective and obviously financially. And we had a conversation with her, same things we say on the show, by the way, which is, look, we have a really good rate of success in getting insurance companies to come to the table and talk to us about resolving these claims within a year of being retained, sometimes within months, and having the case settled. And you know, I think she had a really high degree of skepticism, and that's why I wanted to talk about this at the top of the show. And look, it's fair. I think after you've gone through so much with the insurance company, when in her situation, for example, they never approved her disability benefits at all, right from the start, they had said no to her. She had put together an appeal package, a pretty lengthy one, including testimonials and various things. And so it was quite compelling. And so you know, she came to us and thought, I'm not sure what else to do. It was actually a referral. And, you know, we were able to get the claim resolved. And she was practically in tears, John just couldn't believe, you know, why, what was different? You know, what is it that that can be done in a situation like this? And, and I think that what goes missing, perhaps, is that we are, first of all, quite experienced in doing this type of work. When we review claims files, and particularly in her situation, there was lots of medical information, the claims file was quite thick. When we do that exercise, and and our team talks about this consistently, we know what we're looking for. We know the kinds of issues that we can point out and point that out in a way to equal to dollars and resolution, which is what individuals are looking for when they're trying to apply and get LTD benefits. So, you know, I think that there's a really effective process that's out there. Yes, it does require hiring a lawyer. Yes, it does require a little bit more time, but the rate of success is phenomenal. And, uh, you know, if I may say so myself, you know, I take 
these struggles away, right? For this particular client, it had been such a battle. I said, sure, look, make it my problem. I'm going to deal with the insurance company. I'm going to deal with your medical practitioners. I will get the additional information that I think might be required to persuade the insurance company that this is a claim that needs to be paid. And look, I'm thrilled with the work that we do, but I can't say that enough out there that if you're wondering, look, I don't know if this is the right process for me, that's totally okay. But at the very least, you owe it to yourself to give us a call and let's have a conversation. I will give it to you straight up as I do on our show every week. I'm a straight shooter, very transparent about, look, this is where I think you might have issues with your disability claim. And this is where I think we might be able to help. And I'm committed to the idea of trying to resolve these claims as quickly as we can for as much appropriate compensation for our clients that they deserve. Because otherwise, they're just simply leaving money on the table, John. If you walk away, you let the insurance company sort of get one over you, you're left with nothing. And to me, that's just such a deflating process to go through, especially with the client that I described after several years. You know, it was uh, really rewarding to be able to bring that to a close for her in a way that, you know, now she can really focus on her health and see whether or not there is, in fact, a prospect for a return to work. You know, it's interesting how people on the outside, they just they, they, they just glance over the world of long-term disability and dealing with insurance company and dealing with you guys, lawyers on the other side. They think they're going to be wrapped up in these huge, lengthy, expensive court cases for months and years, and it's just, it's not worth it. So sometimes they just, they, they throw in the towel and they couldn't be further from the truth. Otherwise, you guys wouldn't be doing this. Exactly, John. And we wouldn't be doing it. And I think we would, you know, we we do it also for the right reasons. Look, I think that there is a real need for disability benefits. There's a reason why it's there. It's supposed to be a peace of mind policy because when you're sick and you cannot work, it allows you that or supposed to allow you that financial support in order to give you the time that you need to focus on your health. That's the whole idea. And yet, Time and time again, we see that that simply is not there. And the fact that individuals will get declined for benefits, either right from the start or sometime during the process while they're dealing with the insurance company, inevitably leads to its own set of anxiety and stresses, right? And the courts have recognized that that's an appropriate basis to keep the insurance companies honest. There's recent decisions that have said, look, if the way that you've been treated by the insurance company and the decline of benefits that itself has caused you mental stress and anxiety and issues related to your health, that in and of itself is a basis for a claim for damages. And so insurance companies know this, John, because they know that we are aware of these claims and cases, and they know the types of things that we will say. And so in the context of that, you know, that's some of the conversation I will have with people early on. When when I look at their situation, when they call us for their free consultation, I will say, look, th- this is offside. I don't think it's appropriate. This is what I think about it. And by the way, this is how I'm going to get you there. This is my action plan. And generally speaking, the action plan will include a mediation fairly early on in the process with a fairly comprehensive brief, John, which I prepare And I will include all of this information. I will advocate on behalf of my clients. That's what they've hired me to do. And I will do that in a way that I think is quite persuasive to the insurance companies to say, look, 
this is where you've got problems. And I think that if you're going to stand up before a court and maintain that this individual is not totally disabled, you're going to have problems. And not only are you going to have to pay those benefits, but there is a true exposure to damages. And, and I think for individuals who are dealing with the insurance company or the adjuster, they might just simply not understand or know that they have those rights, that, that there are other cases that are similar. There are situations that people have gone through where the courts have recognized, no, this isn't right. But you wouldn't necessarily know that, John, if you're, this is the first time, and for many it is, that they're dealing with an insurance company in a disability context. You want to reach out and have a chat with Tamar anytime as well if this is all uh, very cloudy for you. That's one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. What else you got going on, Doc? Well, you know, I think maybe we should get going into our emails. What do you think? Great. Yep. Sylvia is the, uh, the first one up. Says, hey, Tamar, thanks so much for doing the show. I've uh, been on disability for three years. My wife and I are thinking about selling our house, which we've owned for more than 20 years. If we do sell our home, does this count as income that they can use to lower my benefits? That's a great question. Probably a common one, too. It it is. You know, Silvio, thank you for reaching out. And so, you know, here's here's what's interesting. Silvio describes that he's been on disability for three years. And so I take from that to mean that he's already gone through what we call the change definition, John. So, you know, we know that after 24 months or two years of payments from the insurance company, the insurance company will have a different test to continue to qualify for long-term disability benefits. And that test is, can you, Silvio, given your health profile, given your background in terms of education and training and experience, can do another job, another occupation, something perhaps you've never done before, but something that would allow you essentially to be earning or receiving by way of income, something roughly around what your LTD benefit is. And it sounds to me as though the insurance company has already accepted and agreed that no, in fact, his health does is, is severe enough, is prolonged enough that he cannot meet, you know, he, he cannot continue working and he met the test and, and managed to get past that change of definition. So that tells me that he's likely on the path of being on this, um, you know, on disability benefits, hopefully for, for a period of time. And so, you know, the, the tough part is that disability benefits only really pay you two thirds of what you were making before. And so as difficult as that is, sometimes individuals who are getting long-term disability, perhaps like Silvio, have to make some tough choices around what to do with their expenses, perhaps their mortgage. And it's, it appears he comes to us and asks, well, look, my wife and I are thinking about selling our long, long, long-term home. You know, if I do that, is that going to impact and lower my long-term disability benefits? And the short answer is no, it, it should not, absolutely not. Because what I would describe that as is is passive income or passive profits, essentially, that you're gaining on your home. That's not usually in the purview or in the zone of something that the insurance company should get a credit for. In fact, I would have a really hard time with an insurance company actually going so far as to say, yep, we will get a credit for this if you sell your home and you're then receiving some kind of profits. You know, it's not right. And what's worse is that if the decision is being made by Silvio as a result of the fact that he's disabled and on a reduced income, and if the insurance company then is taking an improper course by reducing his LTD benefits improperly, there's again an avenue for that if it's related to the fact that it's something that the insurance company did or did should have done 
then it, there's a basis for a claim there. But look, let's do this, John. Maybe we pick this up quickly uh, after our next break. We sure will. Stay tuned for that. And you can contribute to the show anytime as well. Uh, you can do that help at disabilityrights.ca and outside the hour of the show. You want to contact Tamar and her team. would love to talk to you. Just say a chat is a good place to start, right? one 821 5900 We'll continue. Just getting warmed up. Disability Law Show continues. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Tamar Gopian is here reaching out to Tamar and her team. If you have any questions about maybe a claim you're going through dealing with an insurance company, been uh, told to appeal, there's a million different things that they'll throw at you. Confuse? Make the phone call. Just have a chat. Get some clarity. 1-855-821-5900. Email option, simple, help at disabilityrights.ca. And there's always a free and anonymous website to ask questions as well. Tomorrow and her team go through these and get right back to you. That is my disability questions. Dot com, but we'll uh, we'll move on here. And this one, this one always piques my interest. Uh, tomorrow, question that if if a person who's getting disability benefits feels their spidey sense is tingling that the insurance company is doing some surveillance on them, should they should they approach? Should they ask the insurance company about it? Really good question, John. But you know, can I just finish up our our conversation about Silvio's email before we go on to that question? Can I can I get you to put that one on? Absolutely. Yeah. So so before our break, we were talking about Silvio's email. He was asking, "Look, if I go ahead and I sell my home, you know, does this count as income that can be reducing my LTD benefit?" I just wanted to make two quick comments about it. Number one. You know, if there's ever any doubt of what kind of deductions or credits the insurance company can get, please don't hesitate to ask your insurance company, can I have a copy of my disability policy? Okay. If you put it in writing to them, they are required to provide you with a copy. And you can then either contact us, we'll take a look, or just flip to the page that says what we will pay under the long-term disability section. And it will actually enumerate, it will list the four, five, six things that the insurance company may deduct from your long-term disability benefit if you happen to receive uh, additional sources or other sources of income. And so why that's important is because the devil is in the details. And so you do want to see what does that document say? And if it doesn't include explicitly a deduction for something like income received from a property, then I would not expect that the insurance company would be entitled to take that deduction. And I got to tell you, of all the policies that I've reviewed, I've never actually seen one that says that. So I would be, again, quite surprised if in a situation like Silvio's, if he chose to sell his home, that that would actually be considered income appropriate enough for the insurance company to deduct it. But what I was also getting at is that there's this idea of consequential damages or foreseeable damages that stem from a wrong. Okay. This is kind of legal jargon here, but work with me. If something is done by the insurance company that then forces you to react or do something yourself where you incur financial losses, say for example, in Silvio's situation, his LTD benefits were to be cut off. He could no longer afford his mortgage. He was then forced as a result of that to actually sell his home, divest his assets, and then perhaps you know obtain a rental income or do something else. If there's a connection between those two instances, then the courts have recognized that that connection then would be another basis to make a claim against the insurance company. This doesn't happen often. We don't actually talk about it a lot on the show, but those financial connections can create additional losses for individuals. Makes sense, right? You wouldn't otherwise have sold your home unless the insurance company cut you off. And so if you can quantify that, you can make that a basis of a legal claim against the insurance company 
along with all the other things that we would claim, like the disability benefit itself, and obviously damages, poor conduct, these sorts of things that we talk about regularly on the show. It's pretty smart. That's why you got to reach out. You know what I mean? There's so much nuanced stuff to this, but for you, it's uh, not a cakewalk tomorrow, but you and your team are all over this for sure. And that number, again, I'll give it out all show, one 821 5,900. So, uh, so yeah, back to that, uh, that whole surveillance right. thing, you, you think it's happening. Should you just call your insurance company and like, you guys watch Amy? So, so look, surveillance, yes, it is something that can happen. Uh, I think that we've, you know, we, we try and explain to individuals that it doesn't happen all the time, but I know that a lot of people feel really, really paranoid about the fact that they might be surveilled. But about whether or not to actually directly ask the insurance company about it, that's where I think, yeah, you could, you absolutely could. But I got to wonder whether that might do more harm than good. So you really do want to think about what the what what is the outcome? So if you hear, yes, we've done surveillance, what's the next step there? You know, if they're not relying upon it, so if the insurance company is not relying upon it to cut off your claim. They may never disclose it to you. You may never even get a straight answer if you even ask that question. So, you know, and and the downside to asking the question could be that then the insurance company, the adjuster gets their back up and thinks, well, why are you so paranoid? Are you trying to hide something from us? Right. So it may harm the situation somewhat if you're sort of putting up a red flag potentially with the surveillance. I think you might be better off trying to document yourself when you thought you might be surveilled, uh, what you think maybe observations could be. uh, And if the insurance company down the road comes back around and says, yep, we did do surveillance on those days, this is what we observed, then you then have reasonable explanations for those activities, or perhaps no explanation is needed because you've been open and honest with the insurance company the whole time anyway. Most disability claimants, John, have nothing to hide, quite frankly. And so I often scratch my head with insurers who spend a lot of time doing social media searches and surveillance that don't really lead to a whole lot. You know, social media in particular, I would say, you know, most people will put their best foot forward, putting sort of images up that represent a really nice aspect of your life, potentially, as opposed to perhaps what the reality is. You know, there's an element of that, I would say, with social media. Uh, and surveillance can always be taken out of context. And so, you know, when I've got claimants who've come to me when their disability claims have been denied as a result of some surveillance observations, you know, I always look at that quite critically. And, and sometimes I can actually use the surveillance to my advantage, depending on what observations were actually made. Because oftentimes it's sort of two or three days in a row. It doesn't necessarily represent the full picture. You know, it's a few hours here or there, potentially. It's just not that consistent. And it's even more problematic when you're dealing with someone with mental health you know, conditions who may have a good day, goes out, gets their medication, attends a medical appointment, comes home as a po- you know, right, Don? I mean, it's just so yeah. it's it, so it's the there's there's I can see the insurance company's desire to sort of pin some kind of inconsistency. Unfortunately, they do often come from a place of a high degree of cynicism, but that's not always the case. And I think that this is why, you know, it's important for individuals to get the advice that they need, even if those surveillance observations have been made. But it does make me remember one claimant, one individual I had worked with, and we did resolve her claim, but there were actually a couple of attempts of surveillance during the course of her 
claim with the insurance company. And so by the time we had resolved it, she had, and there, you know, her disability was mental health related. And some part of that was actually a high degree of paranoia. And so we had resolved the claim, John, and she actually reached out to me a couple of days later. And she said, look, I think I'm still being surveilled. And I had to disabuse her of that notion, but I really was quite sympathetic of her situation because it can be traumatic somewhat, right? It can be quite intrusive. You know, you sort of feel as though this is something that's going to, you know, be sort of a monkey on your back forever. No, no, not the case at all. You know, once you resolve your claim, you're sort of done with the insurance company. They're not going to be pursuing further surveillance after that. But, you know, I think that even when you are in the process, if that's you, if you've got mental health conditions that do have an element of paranoia and you need to satisfy yourself that this is not something that the insurance company is doing, then perhaps it is something you want to broach with the case manager and say, look, I feel like maybe this is happening. It could be part of my conditions. Maybe you have that kind of a dialogue. But overall, my suggestion most likely would be, look, if it's happening and they're going to rely upon it, they are obligated to be transparent with you and put it in a letter to you about what they've observed and why they're using that as a basis to decline your claim. Well, I mean, a couple of things you've mentioned before when it comes to surveillance, and of course, your colleague James Fireman talks about it all the time. It's number Absolutely. one for hours and hours and hours of surveillance. Number one, they might come up with nothing, which plays to your advantage if it ever comes out in court or if you ever need to look at it. Number two, if, if you're being open and honest about your, your disability, why you're, why, you're, why you're off and why you're following your, your doctor's recommendations, maybe you're supposed to go swimming. So, you know, surveillance of you swimming is not a big deal. Maybe you're not. If you're following the recommendations of your medical team, you really have nothing to worry about anyway. Let them surveil you. Whatever. It's not going to affect you. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's really, really key is that, you know, if you've got your doctor's or practitioners, psychologists, psychiatrists, whoever it might be, counselor, family doctor, doesn't matter, John, whoever yeah. it is is treating you. If they are recommending that this activity, whatever it is, needs to be done as a result, you know, in order to help you with your mental health condition or your health overall, whatever that might be, then absolutely you should be engaging in that activity. And so if the insurance company investigator actually observes you doing that activity and then turns around and says, aha, you know, you did this, the swimming, the jumping, the walking, the whatever it is that they say is the smoking gun. Well, you've got context there. It's very easy to then respond and say, well, hang on, this is activity that my doctor had recommended. And this is why I'm engaging in it. Uh, so no insurance company, I'm not saying anything inconsistent. This is, and, and by the way, I told you about it last week when we talked about my disability claim. So if you're being open and honest, both with your doctors and your insurance adjusters, really, there's nothing to fear from that end. Um, insurance companies are going to do what they're going to do. If they're grappling, can't find a medical reason why to decline your claim, can't find a technical reason to decline your claim, then they're going to try and besmirk your credibility, really. It's part of their toolkit of things that they're disposable at their disposal that they can do or will try to do to get individuals off claim. And I agree, you know, I agree with James wholeheartedly, you know, there could be several hours or there could be only a couple of days. Either way, if the observations are not inherently inconsistent, it actually helps us. I, you know, like I said, I've got certain claimants where it helped the, the claim, you know, it helped the plaintiff, myself and the plaintiff to advocate on their behalf saying, this was 100% consistent with what all the doctors were saying about this individual. And this is why the benefits should have continued insurance company. So 
yes, there's certainly a degree of concern around the surveillance. I absolutely understand that. But at the end of the day, I think that in most cases, it does more harm for the insurance company than good if they're not carefully reviewing the information and the recommendations from your own doctors saying, look, go out and do stuff. It's, it's important. You need to. Plus, well, don't forget, I mean, this uh, this stuff for an insurance company, as much money they, as they, they have in their coffers, it's not free. So they're going to want to yield some sort of benefit from it after they pay for all the surveillance, right? Don't want to waste money. Uh, absolutely. And so this is the thing that it comes down to. They are profit-making companies, absolutely. They will not be spending money on a file like doing surveillance or other things like you know rehabilitation or medical examinations, the various other things that they can do and may do unless they think it's going to get them to the goal of ending your claim, because that's the way they continue to make profits is if they continue to stop paying disability benefits. Um, you know, and, and I, I'm a little bit tongue in cheek about it, but it's, it's quite, it is that way, you know, they, they will spend several thousand dollars doing surveillance and they will be accounted for it. The adjusters will be accounted for it to explain why they did that. And if it doesn't then result in the closure of a claim, or some kind of other movement in the claim to bring it to closure, then you know they're going to be reluctant to spend that time and money to do so, and so they will be careful. Uh, by the same token, you know I think that it can be a bit of a knee-jerk reaction for some insurance adjusters. You know, look, uh, let's do it because I'm suspicious of everyone because I've been doing this job for a couple of years and and I haven't yet to meet a legitimate disability claimant. Again, that cynicism is you know it's toxic and it's not appropriate because uh, there's a lot of legitimately unwell individuals who cannot work, who have the support of the doctors that they cannot work and are required, are entitled to their rights for disability benefits, full stop. And so if this is sounding like it's something you want to talk to us about, please don't hesitate. Our consults are all free. Happy to talk this through. We'll do that and continue with another email here in just a moment. Uh, Mary, you are up next. Appreciate you reaching out on the show today. We'll get to that. Uh, The phone call in between. You want to reach Tamar and her team. It's it's always the same. 1-855-821-5900. Don't hesitate just to pick it up and have a a relaxed chat with Tamar and her team. At least get some clarity moving forward. That can often help you to a a wonderful degree. And the email we use every day is help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you simply go to disabilityrights.ca take it to the firm website there's a media tab you can catch episodes of our tv show that have been ongoing for years as well lots of information there packed into about uh, about 30 minutes so we'll continue with that email and take a short break and come right back at it more of the disability law show is on the way all right welcome back disability law show is what it is and uh, joining us again tomorrow gobi and senior partner right there sam firu to mark an llp the most positively reviewed disability law firm from coast to coast to coast. They have helped thousands of people get the compensation they deserve. It is owed to you. It is not a windfall. It is not a lottery ticket. It is not Christmas. It is something that is owed to you. So don't sit back on your laurels and assume that the insurance company is correct and you cannot bring a fight to them. At least ask them some questions. Do it through Tamar and her team. 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email. That's where we're going. Mary has promised. Thank you so much. And let's get to uh, to Mary's email tomorrow. She says, hey, guys, my disability benefits just got cut off because the insurance company is claiming I didn't attend two of the rehab sessions they had set up for me. There uh, were health and family reasons for why I needed to cancel these appointments, and I rescheduled them right away. And the therapist I was seeing was totally fine with it, but the insurance company wouldn't hear of it. Just cut me off. 
I know they can't do this and I want to fight it, but what's making it worse is now my employer has contacted me asking me when I'm coming back to work. What if I lose my job over the insurance company's wrong decision? Really good questions, Mary. Thank you so much for reaching out. And so I want to explain a couple of things that she describes. The first part is that she was you know, undergoing rehabilitation with the insurance company's treatment provider. That's number one. So that tells me that most likely the insurance company has already a goal in mind that she's going to get back to work for a cer- at, in, within a certain period of time, usually after the rehab is completed. It's a path that they're on. And so if they're on that path, they want to make sure that you stick to that path. Because as I said in our prior segment, if they're going to spend money on rehab, they want that money to, to bear fruit, which is that they stop paying you LTD and you're back at work. So they will hold you to that because the disability policy, the way that most are drafted, will include sections that say, if we think you need certain rehab treatment, you must attend that rehab treatment. And if you don't attend the rehab treatment, we get to cut you off. Okay. Essentially, that's what the policies say. The policies also include a section that says, if you're not getting appropriate treatment for your disability, you don't get disability benefits. Okay. The insurance companies, though, sometimes can pull the plug on this improperly. No surprise there, John, I wouldn't be in business if they did things correctly. And so what it sounds like they've done with Mary is that they've used non-compliance as an issue for her to cut off her claim. So they've most likely said to her, look, you need to go to the rehab. You don't go to the rehab. We're cutting you off. By the way, we're going to cut you off. Okay, now we're cutting you off. It does sound, though, that it was done improperly. Non-compliance is a really tough one for insurance companies to justify. And it does come up in different contexts. For example, if you're not responsive to their inquiries, thinking they can't get a hold of you, if they can't reach you, if they've asked you to do some things and you don't comply with what they've asked, then yes, they do have policy requirements, like I've mentioned about rehab, that allow them to cut off the claim. But it's a really high test to meet. Okay, they can't just do this willy-nilly. Uh, and in sounds like in Mary's situation, it's it's a little bit too soon, a little bit too premature especially when she rescheduled the appointments, John. That's what she says. She's like, look, I had legitimate health reasons why I couldn't attend. I canceled. I rescheduled them right away. The treatment provider was okay, but the insurance company got all hot and bothered. I got to wonder whether perhaps there's a history here. Maybe there's some other issues with compliance with Mary, and this is sort of the last of it, and the insurance company had had enough. I'm not really sure. But if, if if this is all there is, is what Mary has described for us, then I don't think that it was appropriate in the circumstances. Because the guiding light for, for these disability claims, at least in the eyes of a judge or a court, is, is this reasonable? Does it make sense if someone looking back and listening to this situation of what Mary has described, is it reasonable for the insurance company to have cut off her disability benefits while she was still clearly committed to the rehab program? No, I don't think that was reasonable in the circumstances. And I agree with her. She should fight it. And I'd be more than happy to help her do so with a legal claim. But she raises another issue, John, which is now my employer is contacting me saying, I got to get back to work. What's going to happen? Am I going to lose my job? Well, no, it doesn't necessarily work that way. If you are still totally disabled and unable to work, you are not required to get back to work, actually. 
just because the long-term disability insurer has cut you off, especially on what appears to be a non-compliance issue. So, so they didn't cut, let me explain this, John. They didn't, ex, they didn't cut off Mary's benefits because she's fine and able to work. They didn't cut off Mary's benefits because they're saying that she's not still totally disabled. In fact, she is. So no, you're not expected to get back to work in a situation like that. And you would have expected, at least I would have expected, that the insurance company's letter to the employer saying, look, we've cut off her claim, will say something to that effect. We cut her off because she didn't attend rehab. And so the hope and expectation is that the insurance company and the, more importantly, the employer will realize that she's still, from a health perspective, not able to work. And so the easy fix to that one from Mary's perspective is, look, y- you may just need a one-liner quick medical note for the employer, not the insurance company, but for the employer saying she's still unwell, unable to return to work, she will continue to be assessed. And that should theoretically preserve at least the employment relationship until she is able and ready to get back to work. So that, that would be what I would recommend to Mary in a circumstance like this. I mean, you know, it's tough because the employer is probably a little bit in the dark on what the context is here, what's going on. But at the end of the day, if they do have the medical support that you are still not capable of working, they need to accept that. And they need to move on from that and wait to play, to see how this plays itself out in terms of Mary and, and the disability insurer. Well, I mean, not only do you have and handle both sides of this uh, of this matter as far as disability and employment law is concerned, the entire firm does. That's the benefit of being all in one house so that Mary can often uh, or can feel uh, rest assured that she can reach out to you in either regard, right? And you'll be able to direct her either way, whether the employment side or the disability side. Hundred percent, John. And so you can see in situations like Mary how the two intersect. You know, there's a disability law component here and an employment law component. This is why our firm is sort of this match made in heaven. I often say because it allows us then to have a real discussion with individuals like Mary about both aspects of a potential claim here. If she were to be terminated in a situation like this. I think that there could potentially be an issue with the employer as well. And so we want to be able to give clear advice and provide that expertise. Because if you go to a firm who just does disability, who just does employment, they're not going to get how the two work together. And in Mary's situation, it's really important to have that overwhelming advice, overarching advice rather, from both, both perspectives. And we do work in both those areas of law. Short break, and we're back with more, so stay tuned for that. Uh, emails anytime, not just when the show is on, is easy. Help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number, 1-855-821-5900. Disability Law Show rolls on after a short break. Stick around. We're coming right back. All right, welcome back, Disability Law Show. So uh, so good to have you along on the show today. Reaching out anytime when we're not doing this, you can to Tamar and her team. It's 1-855-821-5900. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We were talking about, uh, you know, Mary and off of disability and her, her employer's knocking on the door saying, yeah, when are you coming back to work? Along those lines, does someone in, like Mary in her situation, do they have to share their medical information with their employer before heading back to work or no? Yeah, really good question. Again, this is why we do both areas of law because, right. you know, we need to understand how the, the two work together. And so, Look, you know, my response to this is that your employer is entitled to know your prognosis, but not necessarily your diagnosis, John. Okay. So you don't actually have to disclose the details of your medical information with your employer. 
with a certain caveat. So the caveat is this, if you're returning back to work and your health still prevents you from doing certain aspects of your job, which means that you require some kind of accommodation or there are restrictions and limitations that need to be put in place to allow you to get back to work, then yes, you do have to disclose those features of your health in order to allow your employer to respond to that request and you know meet their duty to accommodate you. That is the employer's duty when someone is returning back from a disability leave. And sometimes that conversation will happen with the support of a disability insurer, but sometimes it doesn't. So for example, in Mary's situation, if she gets cut off prematurely, but she's thinking, maybe I'll get back to work in a month or two, she'll have to broach that directly with her employer. And if she still requires some accommodation or something put in place with her employer in order to allow her to do her job, then it would be upon her to submit that medical information to allow the employer then to accommodate and review that accommodation with her and work with her to put that in place to allow a successful return to work. It's a little bit of a gray area in the sense of, look, you know, I think most people don't want to disclose a lot about their medical history. And I think that's right. You don't want that to be disclosed to your employer. By the same token, if there are medical needs that you have, that need to be put in place, then you do want to share that information because it's in your best interest to do so. So think that through. Certainly, if you're preparing a return to work, you know you want to make sure you've got a lot of buy-in from your medical team. You want that green light right from your doctor saying, "Yep, okay, you know, let's go ahead and, and give this attempt so that it's at the right time and you're doing it in a way that will be successful for you." And then you want to work in partnership with your employer, right? At the end of the day, doesn't help anyone if you rush back and you're still struggling with your health and you, you know it's not a successful return to work. Now, if that were to be the case, though, John, particularly in Mary's situation, then perhaps she would then need to go back on claim, as we call it. She would have the option to exercise her rights under the disability policy to uh, go under the recurrence provision of most disability policies, which say that if you do attempt to go back to work and that attempt is not successful and your health prevents you again from continuing to work, then, and if that's within usually a three to six month window from your prior disability claim, then you should be able to go back on claim without any waiting period. So the LTD benefits should really be kicking back up again without having to wait for it as most people do at the start of their claim. So those options are available, but I think that most people don't really understand how to navigate those waters. And, and I can understand that too, because it's not like most employers will tell you, yeah, these this is how it's going to work. And th- these are the sections in the policy that might work, or this is our workplace policy. And this is what disability says. So This is why we often recommend slow and steady, make sure you get the green light from your doctor, make sure you're working in cooperation with your employer and the disability insurer so that you can have a successful return back to work. I want to get to uh, Wilmer's question, probably a fairly common one. So I want to to get to it. Wilmer says, if my LTD insurance company paid for an independent medical review and a specific therapy is recommended, is the insurance company then responsible for funding that therapy? My health insurance coverage only covers up to a certain amount and I can't afford to pay the rest. I'm sure he is not alone in that book. No, and it's it's really yeah. tough, Wilmer. So so no, actually, the insurance company 
doesn't have to pay for the therapy, right? Yeah. Can you imagine? I know, I know. So let's explain to our listeners what Wilmer is describing. So again, in the toolkit of insurance adjusters, uh, they've got a variety of things that they can do. And sometimes they will send individuals for an independent assessment or an independent review. And that review typically will be done if it's an independent medical examination. It will typically be done by in person by someone that the insurance company has selected as a quote unquote expert in that area. And so it's usually with a doctor or some kind of uh, you know occupational therapist, depending on what the type of review it's going to be or assessment. And from that assessment, that expert or doctor will prepare a fairly detailed report for the insurance company explaining, look, I, I assess this individual and my opinion is this about whether or not they can work. So they're actually going to give a, di- a different opinion potentially from your own doctors about your ability to work. And in the context of that report, will inevitably say, Look, and I think that Wilmer needs, you know, 12 weeks of, uh, you know, psychotherapy. And this is what I recommend for Wilmer. And so fine, the insurance company will receive this report and then will come back to you and say, okay, Wilmer, you got to go get 12 sessions of psychotherapy. Wilmer's going to say, but I only have coverage for 200 bucks under my plan. Each therapy session is going to cost me a hundred. So I can only do two of the 12 that's being recommended. And the insurance company is not going to do much about it, unfortunately. Okay, unfortunately. And so this is a really, really tough one because I personally find it somewhat objectionable that the insurance company will then turn around and say, okay, we're not going to fund it, right? Um, but we think you should get it. And if you don't get it, we're going to cut off your benefits, right? None of that makes any sense to me. And so what I always recommend for individuals like this is, make sure that you get a copy of that assessment, okay? Get a copy of that report and maybe the insurance company gives it to you. Maybe they'll send it to your own doctor, but either way, please do get a copy so that you can have a real discussion with your own medical team. Is this something that I really need? You know, what doctors, you know, my own team, what do you guys think about what the insurance company is paying here or saying here rather, because if I have to pay for some of this, you know, I want to make sure I'm going into this with some buy-in from my own medical team. Because at the end of the day, we know the insurance company's goal is to kick you off claim. And if they think after those 12 sessions, they can justify doing that because you'll make enough progress for them to say you're fine and you could go back to work, then they will do that. So that's their agenda, you know, and, and it is what it is. This is why you must, must engage your own medical team so that you can satisfy yourself. This is treatment that you need that may be worthwhile, at least funding in part yourself. So you can say to the insurance company, look, this is all that I can afford guys. And I've done my best uh, to get this help, but my doctor's recommending something else, medication or some other treatment. And that will do it for another show tomorrow. Amazing as always to reach out to tomorrow. You really should have a chat. It's really cool to do so. Get some information, 1-855-821-5900. want to remind you once again about the email address, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions you have, want to ask them anonymously, you can do that. It takes a moment called mydisabilityquestions.com. Searchable database, by the way, see your question, one similar to it may have been asked in the past and you're good to go. If not, leave it there and it will get answered uh, rather quickly. That's it. We'll uh, pick it up next time. Thanks for joining us here on the Disability Law Show. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.